Welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. I serve as your host and interviewer each week. I'm also the author of the new multi-volume series called Master Mentors. Volume 1 and Volume 2 are out, published by HarperCollins, where each year I am privileged to identify 30 of what you might say are my favorite guests, guests that I think have shared a transformative insight on the podcast, and with their permission, I curate them into one of these volumes where I share not just their insight, but my take on that insight. And these books are available now both in print, audio, digital, and video books from Lit Video. Pick up a copy. Volume 3 will be out in the fall of 2023 on our way to 10 volumes in the series. And although they have sold well, I must say in all humility, they are eclipsed by the sales of today's guest. I want to introduce her for a moment, and then we'll bring her on camera. Her name is Jeanette McCurdy. Now, for those of you who are not frequent watchers of Nickelodeon, you may know that your children were and are and have watched her on literally thousands of episodes of a variety of television programs, including iCarly, one of the most iconic um, series on Nickelodeon. She is uh, an actress. She is a performer. She is an entertainer. She is a survivor. She is an inspiration. She is a screenwriter. And she is an author of a book that in the last four months has sold over 1.6 million copies. Now, think about that. That means that her book is selling close to 400,000 copies a month. Her book came out in August. Her book is called I'm Glad My Mom Died, authored by Jeanette McCurdy. And she joins us today from Los Angeles. Jeanette, welcome to On Leadership. Hi, Scott. I'm excited to be here. We're delighted you're here, Jeanette. Uh, we had some fun off air getting to know each other and talking. And, that was a blast. Uh, I had as, so much fun. Well, as, and as fun as you are and I can be, today's topic is quite serious because um, I've been researching you quite a bit. Let me, let me rewind a little bit. I'm going to pay you a couple of compliments on air. Everyone Thank that you. watches and listens to this podcast knows that I have no credibility on restaurants and on movies, but I am very credible when it comes to recommending books as evidenced by the thousands of books on this set, by the hundreds of people we've interviewed on this podcast. Anyone who is anyone in the world that's an influential author, we have interviewed them. And although my favorite book ever is a book by the author Robin Sharma. He wrote the book, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, and his newer book called The Everyday Hero Manifesto. That is my favorite book. But your book, however, is the best written book I've ever read in my life. Your book is the best written book that I've ever read in my life. It is raw. It is real. It is um, empowering. It is heart-wrenching. It is introspective. It's carefully curated. It's an absolute masterpiece. This is a book that everyone in the world should read if they are a parent a grandparent, an uncle, an aunt, an older sister or older younger brother, if you are a cousin, if you are a neighbor, if you are a minister or a person of the cloth, if you are an educator or an administrator or a leader responsible for anyone's emotional health in terms of raising it or diminishing it. And by the way, if you had parents or have parents, you must read this book. The title, again, is quite inflammatory. It's called... I'm glad my mom died. And it is a raw and riveting account of being raised by your mother who passed from cancer about nine years ago 
and your survival of abuse and her own mental illness. And today we're going to talk a lot about it. Before I introduce you again, I want to say one more thing. There are three books in the last decade that have, in my opinion, impacted the global zeitgeist, if you will, of readership. Three. One is James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. It sits at number one on every list for several years now. Atomic Habits has changed the landscape of how people view their habits, their outcomes, and that. We've interviewed James Clear. He rarely offers interviews. The second is Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey, who we also interviewed, who continues to be the number one, two, or three most read, purchased, audio, digital, and print book in America. And then there is your book that I think will become and is the third most impactful book of the decade. I'm glad my mom died. In fact, as evidenced by, it is easier to get tickets to you-know-who's concert than it is to buy your book because our head writer at Franklin Covey is number 464 in waiting at her local library to check your book out. There are 464 people ahead of her. I finally just sent her the book. But I sent the book to everybody on my team. Jeanette McCurdy, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you so much for those um, very kind words. I feel feel just so flattered. I, 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 I can't believe it. Thank you so much. None of that was inflammatory. I mean it sincerely. I've been looking forward to interviewing you. You're a little bit of an outlier when it comes to the kind of guests we have on our program. Usually they are, you know, business authors and and business titans, but I think there's so much value to extrapolate from your vulnerability, your authenticity, your transparency, your just raw review of, of how you have talked about life with your mother and life growing up. Jeanette, would you take a few minutes and reorient everyone to your career Um, You know, you have millions of Facebook and Instagram followers. You know, millions of people have watched you on television and lots of different series, including iCarly. Reorient everyone to who you are and why you came to write this book titled, I'm Glad My Mom Died. Sure. I'll start with um, really who I was, and that was a child actor. Um, My mom put me in acting when I was six years old, and by 11, I was the primary breadwinner in my family. Uh, I acted in a lot of guest appearances on procedural dramas and, you know, Law and Order SVU and Medium and, and CSI and all those kinds of shows. I was a very serious um, child actor. I was sort of known for being able to cry on cue. And then by um, by 13 or 14, the, the, the direction of my career changed a lot when I was cast on a show called iCarly. It was a Nickelodeon show that just completely blew up and became sort of a cultural phenomenon. Um, and I was on that show from ages 14 to 20, and then I, I was on a spinoff series called Sam and Cat. I was also on Nickelodeon. I played Sam, um, who was the same character I played on iCarly, a real, like, tough, loving, uh, juve- juvenile delinquent girl named Sam Puckett who's, who slings around a butter sock, which is a sock filled with butter. Um, very, <laughs> they didn't get super creative with the naming of that, uh, that tool. But uh, then, then my mother passed away when I was 21. And, um, and I didn't know who I was without her. We had a very enmeshed codependent relationship. Um, 
the way I see it, I had really lived my life for my mom. Everything that I did was to please her, to satisfy her, to meet her needs. Um, she was very emotionally unstable and uh, mentally ill. And I, like many kids who grew up in dysfunctional, chaotic, chaotic or abusive environments, felt that it was my responsibility to regulate her moods, her emotions, and keep her as stable as I could. Um, so that meant, you know, acting and doing well and performing well and being mommy's good little girl and being her best friend and really filling a role that was never my responsibility, but that I, of course, didn't know. Uh, and then and then she died when I was 21 and I really didn't know what to do with myself. Um, but little by little, I, I, um, I eventually kind of came to therapy and, and, and was able to put one foot in front of the other and literally get through it one day at a time until I was able to start um, figuring out what it was that I wanted. And that in many ways meant letting go of the things that had defined me for so long, um, namely my relationship with my mom and, um, and acting, which had really been the thing that I felt completely defined by in both my family. And of course the public at that point really knew me quite well. Um, so I quit acting when I was 24 and, uh, and I really started unpacking my relationship with my mom in therapy. And even though it's a relationship I'll never be able to let go of and never not, I'll never not be informed by it. Um, recognizing that what my experience was with her, uh, recognizing that that was abuse and um, learning to validate my emotional pain from that experience and learning to um, take her down off the pedestal that I so desperately needed her on for so long was really um, that and the quitting acting were really, as I see it, kind of the main components of my a healing process as well as working on uh, an eating disorder. I had had three eating disorders throughout my life at that point. Uh, it had been a decade, a decade of them, and they'd really sort of been the main, um, the primary addiction in my life and also the main thing that I focused on as a coping mechanism. I just couldn't really handle my life, and, and so I reverted to eating disorders. And so quitting acting, reframing and properly understanding my relationship with my mom and um, working on recovering from an eating disorder were the main factors that I think got me to a place of healing. And and then um, my, my favorite piece of all of that is the writing piece, which is something I'd always wanted to do since I was very little. My mom never supported it. Her go-to line was, oh, writers get fat and dress frumpy. You don't want to wear a cable knit cardigan. Um, now I own many cable knit cardigans and I write professionally uh, and I and I just couldn't be more grateful to be able to do that now. For those that have not read this book, all that you just heard there may be lost on you. For those that have read this book, you can appreciate perhaps how underwhelming Jeanette has described her upbringing. <laughs> but, but either way, go read the book and then rewatch this interview or you're going to be loving uh, diving into this. Um, Jeanette, I'm not, I'm not quite sure where to start. Your book okay. will have sold 2 million copies by next week when I actually release this interview. So I'm guessing with 2 million people reading it, most things are fair game that you've written in this book. Uh, you're, you don't portray your mother as being evil. You don't portray her as being um, so much a bad person. She must have had enormous uh, mental health issues and obsessions and paranoias and anger management issues and identity issues. Uh, in the book, you share so many stories that kind of all congeal around one theme. And that was, you became to believe that your purpose was to make your mom happy. Every breath, everything you wore, every word you spoke, everything you ate, everything you did was to keep your mother happy. Whether it was to keep her from rage or disappointment 
or depression, that you lived your life, your purpose. You recognize, you wrote that your purpose was to make my mother happy. Yes. Talk about when you came to realize that was not the right path for you. I really didn't fully realize until after she had died. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I grew up, she homeschooled me and, and my brothers, and we grew up in the in the Mormon church. And um, so we didn't have a whole lot of, uh, of friendships outside of our, our home. It was really just kind of my brothers and myself. And so I didn't have a lot of influences or, or, or people around me were, that I was able to kind of compare my situation to theirs until um, she started, she signed me up for dance classes. And then I, I noticed that kind of other people's relationships with their mothers, they were quite different, especially around the age that, you know, puberty started to hit and girls started talking about boys and, and going out with their friends and, and wearing training bras, all things that I would never imagine doing. Um, because uh, kind of a part of my relationship with my mom is that she really wanted me to stay young and infant- she infantilized me in a lot of ways. And so I, I felt that that was uh, something that I needed to do. I needed to stay young to, to earn her love, to, to keep her love. And, um, and, and so I, I kind of shoved down and suppressed any idea that, oh, this might not be normal. This might not quite be an appropriate dynamic. Um, I just kept clinging to the idea that she was perfect and that we were best friends. And, and, um, and then after she died, it, it really was, um, it was me sitting in, in that therapist chair for the first time and the therapist asking me questions about my relationship with my mom. And I immediately became very defensive. Um, any anecdote that I shared about our relationship, I disclaimed. Uh, oh, well, she taught me calorie restriction when I was 11, but the reason why she did that is because she wanted me to look small and young for my age because that's good for booking acting roles. Like everything that I said about her, um, I, I filtered through how do I make her look good while saying these things that as I'm saying them, I'm registering in the therapist's face, oh, these these aren't good things that I'm saying. Um, and then my therapist turned to me toward the end of the session and said, you know, um, Jeanette, what you're describing is abuse. This this is abuse, um, and I hope you know that. And then I quit therapy. I couldn't accept the reality. I couldn't go near the reality that my mom was abusive. I was I was just nowhere near able to accept that because that would mean reframing my entire world, my entire focus. As as you mentioned, Scott, my, I I my I felt that my purpose was to make my mom happy. So if my mom was abusive, well, that can't be my purpose any longer. But the idea of figuring out what my actual purpose was for me, that was just too daunting, too intimidating. So I quit therapy. And then it was about a year and a half of, um, of struggling with bulimia, struggling with substance abuse, struggling with, um, with I think the biggest struggle of all is, is that trying to resist reality um, and trying to live in denial. And I, and I tried doing that. Uh, I really gave it my best shot, but just after a year and a half of it, I, I wasn't able to deny the reality any longer. A series of events happened where I realized some things about my mom um, that I won't say here unless you want to unless you want to go into later on. But um, I, I learned, I discovered kind of little pieces of of things that that my mom um, had kept me out of the loop of that were really important to my identity, and uh, and I and I. Um, finally felt ready to unpack the reality of what our relationship had been. Jeanette, as I was preparing for today's interview, I was a little lost as to which questions to ask you, something that's not common with me. I usually have way more questions than I need because when Mm. I read this book, 
I, I think I told you off camera that I, I stopped at every chapter and I mentioned I'm this father of three sons with my wife, Stephanie, eight, 10, and 12. Three boys, eight, 10, oh, and 12. Two ages. Sec- second, well, it's getting better. <laughs> second grade, uh, fifth grade, and seventh grade. And at, the, and, and at the end of each chapter, I have stopped and I've thought really carefully, okay, wow, so what part of that's going on in my house? Whether it was the hoarding, whether it was the manipulation, whether it was your mother demonizing your father's uselessness, whether it was her, you know, whatever it was. Now, little to none of it is, but I've been asking myself, okay, so is there any glimmer of that going on in my world? I was not raised like you were. You were mentally, emotionally, psychologically abused by your mother. There's no question. You were physically abused by your mother in terms of how she was restricting your calories, how she was, in essence, starving you, bathing you, showering you with your brother, and then, uh, and then you kind of leave that chapter a little bit open to imagination when you were 16. You were physically abused by your mother. You leave that chapter perhaps purposely kind of open to interpretation. Was, was there any sexual abuse going on in your life? First, I just want to say, you know, you mentioned this, this kind of question of like, you know, is this happening in my house? And a lot of parents have approached me and, and said that, that, that the book has kind of given them that response or that reaction. And I just think it's so amazing that people are asking that question. And I think asking that question is so indicative that there's nothing like that going mm-hmm. on. Like, I don't think my mom had the capacity to ask those kinds of questions to herself. I really don't think that. I just think there were such limitations on her because of mental illness, because of narrow mindedness and, and, you know, narcissism, frankly. I think I think she just wasn't able to to go deep enough to ask that. Um, And certainly she was not interested in working on herself. And that's really what I think was the most hurtful aspect of all um, in the grieving process was recognizing not only did she not have the tools to work on herself, but she never wanted to. There were yeah. many people who confronted her. Um, you know, my, my, my grandfather would beg with her saying, Deb, please get help, please work on this. My father, please, you need, to, you need to see someone. You can't treat the family this way. And she would just scream and, you know, throw plates at people's heads or chase my dad around the house with a kitchen knife. She would kick in cupboard doors. She was very violent. And um, she couldn't be told that she needed to work on anything. It would immediately be, you need to see a therapist. You need to work on something screaming, you know. Um, so, so she really didn't have the ability to kind of an introspect or, or reflect on her behavior at all. As I see it, uh, I think that's, the, that's, that's really the, the part that was the most difficult to come to terms with. But um, the sexual abuse piece, you know, that was something that was really difficult for me to um, label in therapy and difficult for me to um, fig- to figure out how how I wanted to label it, you know, because to me and calling it sexual abuse was something that felt like I was again justifying my mom's behavior. Well, I don't think she was getting a sexual any sexual pleasure out of it, but then you know in terms of what the contact was, that is that reaches the criteria yes. for what sexual abuse is, yeah. you know. So, yeah. um, kind of accepting that was was yeah was its own was its own piece of the puzzle. I think there there were just so many different layers of acceptance, and and in so many ways, one piece had to come before another piece because it, it just it would have been too many pieces to try and accept at once. Had I tried to do it that way, well, I asked the question because in addition to being an acclaimed actress and entertainer, you obviously are an enormously talented screenwriter and writer, and you've written this book in a way that is just riveting. 
in terms of it being almost like scene by scene and apparently word by word and conversations that you recapped from many years in your life. Why did you write the book? I, people ask me this a lot and it's so, and, and, and I've actually been, I've been speaking at, at colleges and I really enjoy um, doing that. But what a lot of the college students ask is, hey, I'm working on a memoir I'm, I, or I want to write a memoir and I just want to know like, you know, there's all this shit that's going on in my life and how do I write a memoir? And my thought is immediately kind of a yikes because, um, you know, never, never in therapy was I like sitting on the couch being like, and then this happened with my mom. Oh, that'd be good for the memoir. Like I wasn't like thinking of, you know, oh, this is going to be a good, a good memoir someday. And this is going to be, you know, my calling card or whatever. Like it wasn't, it wasn't that I really did the work for myself in therapy for about six years before eventually getting to a place where I did think, you know what, I think I have learned some things. Um, I think I have perspective on my story and I think I have distance from my story in a way that I trust I can make this um, entertaining, palatable, and, you know, and, and not to be too corny, but hopefully, you know, help other people heal in ways that I didn't have you know, I didn't have a book like this to read when I was struggling a lot, and I, I think, um, I think I've, I've learned enough that I, that I, that I hope there, there are some things I can share with others who might be struggling. And, um, and once I, I started writing it, it just started, you know, it, it started coming out very quickly. It's why I think everyone that's alive should read this book because uh, I did not, in any way, follow a similar journey in life with my upbringing. However, I'm a very strong-willed parent. Uh, I have a big personality. I'm fairly charismatic. I do not have cancer, hopefully, nor do I weaponize that against my children like your mom did you and other people to shocking amounts. But I want to share a story with you. I mentioned I have three sons. One of my sons, all of my sons have my DNA, obviously, but I'm a fairly tall, thin guy, about, a, about 6'1", about a buck 78 after a hot fudge Sunday, something you don't know about, but... Uh, my boys are also very thin. Um, my oldest boy in particular, just a beautiful boy, smart and, and, and kind and generous and empathetic. He's going to be a rock star. He's quite underweight. We need to have him lifting weights, and he needs to actually eat more high-caloric calories. Body image is a thing for boys as well as girls. It's not talked about, but it's definitely an issue for boys, especially in your preteens. And I've been working with uh, uh, his pediatrician, uh, the right way to talk about it, not make it too big of a deal. I don't want him to become, you know, he has no eating disorders that I can tell. He's going to be just fine. And I'm trying to find the right calibrated path to help him gain some weight and some muscle and to you know, feel a little bit more uh, uh, similar to those around him. Your book has really haunted me in a good way just to make sure that I'm not making too big of a deal out of it, that it's his decision, that he finds a good body image for himself, recognizing there are external pressures. Will you talk a bit about this? I mean, you dropped some truth bombs in this book. And one of them is the chapter when you dropped the phrase, your mom says, she calls you by name, I think, and she says, yes, it's called calorie restriction. You mentioned it a couple of times so far. Talk about the impact, uh, talk about the impact of your mother encouraging you to taste, to count your calories. You, you had like five foods you ate. I mean, certain popsicles and water, solid fruits, whatever you call them. It just, I couldn't even relate to it. 
but I'm thinking a lot about it as it comes to my children. Take that where you'd like it to go for the benefit of our listeners and viewers. Yeah. Um, when I was 11 years old, I um, felt a lump in my breast, which I thought was cancer. My mom first had cancer when I was two years old, so I thought, well, she had it, and now I have it. Um, I approached her and said, Mom, I have this lump. What do I do? And she said, I'm worried it's cancer. And she said, it's not cancer. You're just getting boobies. And um, at that time, boobies was maybe the only thing to me that was worse than cancer because in my kid logic, you know, I mentioned earlier about my mom uh, wanting me to stay young for acting roles because that would mean that I would book more. So I felt, oh, my God, I'm not going to book as many roles. Mom's not going to love me as much. I need to stay small. What can I do? And I asked her, I said, Mom, what can I do to keep the boobs from coming in? And she said, well, there's a thing called calorie, calorie restriction. It was the first time I'd heard that phrase. Um, and then she went on to... Um, weigh me daily, measure my thighs with a measuring tape. She'd portion out my foods for me. Um, every day we had this routine where we'd kind of recount what we, eat, what we had eaten for the day. We'd swap little tips. And something that's, you know, darkly funny to me about it is that child, um, a child's point of view, a child's naivete. I was so in denial that what was happening, I, I, I didn't know that was abuse. I had no idea. I thought, oh my God, mom and me are or I thought, oh my gosh, because I was Mormon, so I, we didn't take the Lord's name in vain, but I thought, oh my gosh, mom and me are sitting here teaming up, counting our calories. We're best friends. We're working on this together. This is great. Go mom. Like I felt very, um, I felt like it was a very good and useful thing for me in my life. Um, and I felt that way for a long time. I felt, I felt that mom and I were in this partnership together and, uh, and we were making things happen and we were a good, solid team. Uh, it was it was literally only uh, once I had I had been to therapy when I was 21 after her passing that I had started to explore that for what it really was. Jeanette, you also mentioned that you were the breadwinner for your family at the age of 11. I mean, it's just a you know, in some cases you can kind of identify with your mom because of her genius manipulation, right? And and. I don't mean to say that's the kind of parent I am because that's not true, but I could find myself empathizing with your mother, kind of falling into her logic. Uh, you, you mentioned that you were the breadwinner for your family, enormous pressure to put on a child because your mother had demonized your father for not being able to provide for the lifestyle to which she wanted to live. And your mother was obviously, like many of us, very image conscious and like all of us, manipulative, and like all of us, a little bit jealous. And most people don't use those words to describe them because they're not self-aware. But you can see a little bit of your mom in all of our lives. We just tend to have governors, right? And we are self-aware. We have relationships that call us on it. Yeah. What do you think your mom would think if she'd read the book? I just have to say the relationships that call us on it, I think, is such a good point because I think my mom put herself in a position where no one could call her on it. You know, I mentioned that my father, my grandfather tried, but I think why ultimately nobody really truly, you know, was able to get her to do the work. I mean, first off, it's because she wouldn't, but also because I think they knew if they pushed too hard, she would just cut them completely out of, of her life. You know, she'd just say, he's out, he's gonna, he, no, no more of him. You know, she had my dad staying in, sleeping in his car, you know, very often, every couple of weeks, at least he'd be, he'd be sort of cast out to the car and wouldn't be allowed to sleep in our house. So that was, you know, that was how she operated. Um, if my mom had read the book, I, I don't think she'd be self-aware enough to, to 
understand um, what I hope are the nuances of it and, and, and what I think is resonating with people. I think she'd just be like, oh, a book about me? Oh my God, it's about me. Like, wow. I think she'd just think wow. that. I think awesome. it'd just begin and end there. <laughs> you're one of, you have three brothers, right? Three brothers? Yeah, three older brothers, yeah. They've obviously all read the book. I don't know what your relationship is with no. them. No, actually, one my oldest brother has not read the book. I'm, um, to be honest with you, I'm hurt by it. I understand his reasoning. He said, you know, that was a really traumatic time and I don't want to re-traumatize myself. And I get that because I was yeah. very avoidant that way for a long time. But I, I just think it'd be really helpful. And I think, um, I believe it's a disservice to himself to not read it. And it's really disappointing to me. Um, and and I, I, I kind of can't believe it. Well, just statistically, he'll read it at some point because the book is on <laughs> fire. <laughs> How about your other two brothers? Are you in contact with them and have they read the book? Yeah, I'm in contact with all my brothers and the other two brothers have read it. And actually the one who is who I consider and I think of as the most sensitive and the most um, the one who maybe I expected wouldn't have read it. He read it first and, and he was just so supportive and, and loving about it and, and really, really um, I, 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 I think and hope from what he said to me that it did provide some some level of comfort and, 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 uh, and, and healing for him. Jeanette, your father makes very episodic appearances in the book. Is your father still alive? And what, if any, has been his take on the book? My father is still alive. Um, this is, yeah, this is, there's, a, there's, a, there's a complicated, it's weird to call it a twist because it was, it happened in my life. Um, it was a life twist as well as a book twist, but where I, um, and feel free to cut this out if you feel this is a spoiler, but I found out um, a year and a half or so after my mom died that who I thought was my dad, yep. this man who made episodic appearances in the book, um, was not my actual father and that my, uh, I had a different biological father as did two of my three older brothers. Yep. Um, so both of those men are still alive. Um, I don't, I have, I have occasional contact with my biological father. He read the book and was very supportive. And, and, um, that was the last time I spoke to him. He reached out to me about that. Um, and my, my, who I thought was my dad, uh, growing up, we, we don't, we aren't in contact. Um, I, I, I couldn't tell you the last time he reached out. Maybe he sent me a birthday text. I don't think so. Maybe a Christmas, it'd be like a Christmas and holidays, like yeah. Merry Christmas, yeah. Happy Birthday. That's the extent of it. Yeah. Can you, I, I want to talk before we hang up, because before we hang up, before we hang up our podcast, <laughs> before we hang up our call, before we end, I want to talk about how you wrote the book and the cover for a moment. Let's leave the cover for a second. You wrote this book almost like it was a screenplay I, to some extent. It's very short chapters, easy and, bree easy and breezy. Your goal as a child was to be a screenwriter, and your mother, of course, um, uh, uh, denied you of that. Uh, passion. You've proven yourself to be vindicated because you're a geniusly talented screenwriter. How did you write the book? Did you have help writing it? Because you've written it in a way that is uh, almost as if you wrote it. I'm not sure what the genre is, but you wrote it at the age you were. So everything is sort of age appropriate and you recreated conversations. It's a masterpiece. How did you end up writing this book and over what period of time? I mean, thank you again for the kind words. That's just um, really, it, 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 it just means so much to me. Um, I, I started writing it in January of 2021. Wow. Um, and I think the, the last draft was in maybe March of 2022, March of this year. Um, and I, and I, I wrote about, I, I'm a big drafter, so um, 
if any of you listening are, are writers, I'm sure you're familiar with plotters versus pantsers. I thought and tried really hard. I tried to be a plotter for a long time. I thought that was what a real writer was. A plotter is somebody who meticulously crafts out the story ahead of time and even down to lines of dialogue and knowing what color a person's shirt is. Um, very in the details before even going to that first page. And um, and what wound up happening so often, I, I wrote for six years before writing this, you know, I wrote many projects that didn't see the light of day before writing this memoir. But um, what I learned is that I'm not a plotter and I was really trying to force myself to be a plotter. But what was happening was I would get so um, caught in my mind and overthink so much that I just would never get to that first page. I'd get so defeated before even looking at the at the first page of a document. I'd get, I'd get defeated just in the outline. Um, and so accepting that I was a pantser was incredibly helpful, and that was really when I really started to um, be able to finish projects and um, and uh, like what I was writing. And what I realized is, as a as a uh, consequence of being a pantser, I have to draft many times. I hear from a lot of writers; um, a lot of them are my friends who they just that first draft is almost locked in for them. Uh, it's so close. For me, that's not the case. I did about a, a dozen drafts on this book, and and I. I think of the first draft as kind of a suggestion of what it's going to become, and I feel like I can um, orient myself to it and see, okay, what what am I trying to say here? And then I the the the, the real work begins after that first draft. That's how I see it. Um, you asked if I had help, and I have an incredibly supportive and very smart team. Uh, my manager is Norma Lajim. I always shout him out. My my agent is Peter McGuigan. You actually remind me of my agent, Scott. Like you you guys have a really similar. Um, energy and it, I, I, I find it very endearing. But um, but my agent Peter is incredibly smart, and then my editor Sean Manning at Simon and Schuster, and all three of them um, were reading every single pass and just giving really insightful, sharp notes. Um, I, I, and I and I am I, you know I owe a lot to them. They're really able to. Um, I think giving notes effectively is a really really hard skill to have, um, and I've I've definitely gotten plenty of notes where I kind of don't really understand what they mean and I kind of have to try and work backward and think, okay, well, maybe if this is what they're talking about, this is a note that I can make uh, if I want to, to kind of change it appropriately. But there's a lot of, uh, there, I think it's easy for there to be a lot of miscommunication or a lot of blurriness in notes and all of them are very clear with their notes and um, and, and and they really break them down so um, so thoroughly. And, and, and that was really, really helpful to, I think, making the, the book, um, what it eventually became. Jeanette, your book oscillates between number two, three, four, and five of the best-selling books in the world on Amazon. Not in a category like number two, three, or four of all books in print. It's something I can't imagine you anticipated would happen four months ago. Or did you? No, you know, no, I, um, I... I realized that there was pressure for it to make the New York Times bestseller list a, a couple weeks beforehand when I was kind of CC'd on an email that I don't know if I was supposed to be CC'd on, where they were like, hey, are we looking good with those pre-order numbers for the Times for the, the New York Times list? Um, and I was like, guys, I'm on this thread, and then I like miraculously disappeared off of it. But um, so I knew there was some pressure, and then it debuted at number one, and I and I was, I mean, I screamed, I was crying, I was just so um, happy, but then for it to, it's been on the, the times list for, for the 18 weeks since it's been released. And I, I can't, um, I could never have imagined this, this kind of response. And I, I find it really, um, incredibly cool. I don't know. I feel like people, I feel like the thing that you say is like, oh, I'm so humbled by this. I don't know. 
I don't know if I resonate with that. I feel like, yeah. cool. Yeah. I feel like this is awesome. Well, I think it's not only awesome and cool, but it's, I think, very empowering to the people who are reading it. Uh, let's talk about the cover and the title. I mentioned to you off air, I was in New York City last week with Simon & Schuster, our editors there, my editor for some books that I've authored, and they're on behalf of Franklin Covey. And I was meeting with several editors, none of which who were yours. And your book was all over you know, the Simon & Schuster headquarters and on the shelves, and I was, of course, extolling how much I loved this book and, of course, how good friends we were going to become this week on my podcast. And anyway, actually, I, I was referring to you as my good friend, Jeanette McCurdy. And what, one of the editors who thought he had a glimpse into your book, which I think he did, said, you know, the title and the cover was Jeanette's idea. I mean, your book cover is remarkable. I mean, when the last time in book publishing has the name of the publisher, the price, and the ISBN number been on the front of a book cover. Oh, I don't know, never. And the style of your book is sort of very, almost like 60s, 70s, early 80s, sort of middle America housewife. You're, you're, you're dressed very deliberately. You're holding what looks like an urn of your mother's ashes. The title could not be more polarizing or provocative. Walk us through your intention behind all things title and cover. Yeah, the title, it was, there was never a, a doubt in my mind that that should be the title. Um, we had sent the initial proposal of the book to uh, about seven publishers and, and many of them passed just on title alone. They said, we're not even reading this. You can't name a book this. And, and my manager kindly said, well, if they don't want to make the book that you want to write, um, that's not going to, we'll either get the book made by somebody who does want to make the book that you want to write, or we won't get a book made at all, but it's, it's going to be what you want it to be or nothing. Um, and I really appreciated that boldness from him and that guidance from him. And luckily, you know, we were able to find Sean Manning at Simon Schuster, who just completely understood it right off the bat and, and really, really, um, got the tone and just, I mean, God, I can't imagine if we hadn't, if, if the book hadn't crossed his desk. Um, and then for the cover, we had gone through a couple different pitches. Um, I had pitched this with, you know, me holding an urn filled with confetti that's kind of popping out of it. And I knew that I wanted my expression to be somewhat serene. I didn't want it to be flippant. I didn't want it to seem like I'm making fun of yeah. my, you know, dead mom. I, I mean the title sincerely and, and I, I and literally and I wanted it. I wanted the, the expression to kind of reflect that. Um, and then there were two other, do you want to hear the two other book cover pitches I please, have? Please, please. <laughs> one was a, one's a pink, one's a pink hearse. This might've been some, I think this might've been Jackie Sow's idea at Simon Schuster, but it was a pink hearse and then me sort of like standing on the hearse. But what we wound up figuring out was that that's, it'd have to be so far away of a shot that yes. you wouldn't register what we were looking at. Yeah. Um, and then you the were going to be standing on top of a pink hearse. Yeah, standing on top of or maybe driving the pink hearse, I but see. then there was maybe like a big pink piece of fabric. I and I knew I wanted pink because pink was my mother's favorite color, and I swore it was my favorite color to her because, you know, that my made her happy. But yeah, I didn't want to tell her what my favorite color was. So um, that sort of, to me, captured captured something fun and meaningful in the book. Um, I knew I wanted it to be pink. And then the third pitch, which was mine, which was very quickly vetoed by all, um, was <laughs> me looking like. Oh yikes! And and uh, corpses' arms wrapped around me, very tightly. <laughs> um, and so we went with the urn, which I think was the right choice. But then, um, as to the other kind of elements of the book, I I got back some some comp, some covers that were just kind of hey, here's some mock-ups. What do you think? And I felt like they were missing something. I didn't know what, but it just 
I, I liked how it looked, but just me holding an urn, it just felt incomplete. And so I sent um, the mock-ups to my friend Faye Orlove, who's this brilliant artist. Um, and she immediately had the idea for everything that you see that's the retro, that's the yeah. throwback. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that you mentioned of the Simon Schuster, that was all Faye Orlove's idea. And, and she just knew immediately she... Um, she wanted to bring that kind of throwback element in, and I just think she's she's so brilliant, and, and I, I, I couldn't be more grateful that she had that idea. Well, you have surrounded yourself with a team of very talented, caring people. What I do want to mention before we end, Jeanette, is for those who might be misinterpreting our conversation as being glib or disrespectful, I can tell you that's not the case. My father passed away this summertime, and I'm mm. still figuring out how to mourn my father's death. I was not especially close to him. We weren't estranged. It just was, you know... Uh, unfortunately, fairly typical adult son-father relationship where there was no drama, no trauma at all. It's just it was, you know, rather distant. And, um, mm. and your book came out just about a month after my, pa my father passed at okay. a time when I was starting to grieve. And I have to tell, for those of you who that have not read this book, because you've dismissed it because of the title, which some of you have done that as I begin to promote this book on my own social media. And then, of course, 90% of everybody else says, oh, my gosh, you have to read this book. It is so enlightening. You do, not, um, you do not make light of your mom's passing. In many ways, you could argue that your mom's passing was an unintended gift to you because it helped to begin your healing journey of the abuse that your mother had um, intentionally, deliberately perpetuated on you for close to 20 years. And I don't mean to demonize or, 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 or um, illuminate your mom, but your mother abused you tragically, emotionally, psychologically, physically, mentally. And this book is a, this book is a, a, a guide. It's a manual to parents and to children alike to stop that in its tracks should that be happening in someone else's life. Am I close? I think you're spot on. I, that's really the argument that I'm kind of trying to make, you know, with the book. And, and absolutely, I anything that I say in the book is not flippant. Anyone who reads it knows that, you know, it's not glib. Yeah. I, I, I believe and know that I've earned my perspective on this, um, that it did not come easy. Um, that it would have been easier to just keep my mom on the pedestal, that it would have been easier to just pretend like everything was okay. Um, I know what I've been through to get where I am, and I do think it's a story worth um, sharing, and that's what I've done, and I've tried to do it in um, in the way that I know best, which is to be, you know, to be truthful with it, to be funny in certain places, to be serious in others, just whatever feels the most honest to the to the to the moment that I'm sharing or reflecting on. And, and, uh, and I really do hope that it helps other people who might be struggling with something similar. You know, if this were the last interview I led on this podcast, I would be satisfied. I'm going to end with this. For those mm -hmm. who think perhaps I'm being a, a sycophant to you or overly deferential, they would be mistaken. Uh, I know a good book when I read it. One of our producers recently said to me, well, how are you going to connect that book to the topic of our podcast, organizational leadership and, a, and building a culture? And I said, you know, everyone in a company was parented by someone. And everyone in a company brings all of their joy and their pain and their trauma and their baggage, and they bring it to the office. And that's how they treat their employees, how they treat their colleagues. And if you really want to build a great culture in an organization, You've also got to look at what's happening in the home. And although Franklin Covey is not an expert on parenting, 
I think if you want to build a great culture, you've got you to gotta bring healthy people into the workplace and let them tell their story. And so my hope is that today's podcast discussion with you helps people that are leaders in the company recognize they're also leaders in their home. And they have enormous responsibility, like I do. I'm not sure if you're a parent or not. Perhaps someday you will be. Or in some you know, uh, uh, guardianship role or shaping students or, or, parent or young kids or whatever. The book is a seminal book on parenting. And for those of you who want to be better leaders, it starts in your home. I hope you find that as a compliment. I think that was so beautifully said. Um, I, I, I candidly, I got chills on my arms in the middle there. And I will say just to kind of um, go off of that, you know, I think in many ways, parents are, you know, they're, they're leaders of their home. I think my mom had the role of, of leader as one of her sort of, you know, job titles. Um, and also I worked around many um, leaders in the entertainment industry at an early age. And I, and I think that those people who were in leadership roles uh, in my life really could have done a better job. Um, I think they really, um, <laughs> I don't mince words. I was going to say, I think they really failed. And uh, I've tried really hard to change the direction of my life so that I don't let their behaviors and their failures impact the way that I run mine. Uh, and I hope the same for anybody who's listening to this and, and, um, and relates, unfortunately relates. As I open to this podcast, I think there will be three books that will be remembered in the 2020s. There will be more than that, of course, obviously, but three books that all fall into a similar level of impact. James Clear's Atomic Habits, Matthew McConaughey's Green Lights, and Jeanette McCurdy's I'm Glad My Mom Died. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.